The book of John and, the, and chapter 12, which is the passage that we're going to be in today, is on page 899 of those Bibles that are there in those chair racks in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible, but you would like to own a Bible, congratulations, you do now. Uh, there is no little tag in there that as you walk out the doors, it's going to set an off alarm. That Bible is yours to keep. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. John chapter 12, in a few moments we're going to uh, be working our way through that passage, <clears throat> beginning in verse 20. But as you can see on the screen behind me, the title of the message today is Practice Resurrection. Practice Resurrection. And, and that word practice has a couple of different definitions that you could apply to it. Practice, on the one hand, can have the idea of repeating a skill over and over again in order to gain proficiency at that skill. So if you would like to be better at golf, then you're going to have to practice your golf swing. You're going to have to do the same motion over and over and over again in order to gain a proficiency at it. If you want to get better at the piano, or if you want your child to, to be learned to play the piano, they're going to have to practice the piano in order to gain a proficiency in it. But that's not the only definition of the word practice, because practice can also mean a, a profession uh, that one engages in, an activity that one engages in either personally or professionally. So you could become a nurse practitioner. And if you are a nurse practitioner, what are you? You're a person who practices the skill of medicine. Or if you've gone to law school and you've passed the bar exam and you've done all the things that are necessary to become an attorney, you can then set up your own law practice. And when we use the word practice there, we don't mean that you're going to set up a, a place where you try to figure out how to be an attorney. Hopefully, you know by now. Now you are engaged in the professional activity of being an attorney. Those are the two ways that word practice could be used. And it's that second definition of practice that we're talking about this morning when we talk about the idea of practicing Resurrection. We're going to talk about what that means and what that looks like as we move through the message today. But what I want to do, just right up front with you, is I want to give you the truth that I want you to take home. Right at the outset, if there's anything that you remember this morning, it's going to be this truth. Christians are people who practice resurrection. Again, I'll say what I mean by that in a few moments. But Christians are people who practice resurrection. That phrase, practice resurrection, I have stolen from the poet Wendell Berry, who some of you may have read. But when we talk about practicing resurrection, we're talking about the fact that Christians are to be practitioners of the resurrection life. In other words, we are not just supposed to be theorists. 
We are not people who acknowledge mentally the reality of the resurrection. We are not supposed to be people who simply gather together on Easter Sunday to celebrate the historical reality of the resurrection, though all of those things are true, but we are to be practitioners of resurrection reality. And I say that because of something Jesus said to us in John chapter 12. So if you're there with us in John chapter 12, turn your attention, please, to verse 20. In John chapter 12 and verse 20, the Word of God says this, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, we'll pause our reading there for a moment. The feast that the Bible is referring to right here is the feast of Passover. Passover was kind of like homecoming. Passover was a time when people who were spread all, were Jewish people who were spread all throughout the Roman Empire, many of them would return to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, to commemorate Passover, which commemorates their deliverance from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And the Lord had told them that they were to mark that time, that they were to mark that deliverance every year. So it's Passover, and of course there are people there in Jerusalem who are interested in, G- in Jesus who may not be fully Jewish in some way. We don't know exactly what the Bible means when it refers to, to these people as Greeks, but it's probably referring to them, using that term to describe them as as Gentiles, which is anybody who's not fully a Jew. So there's these Greeks who wish to have an audience with Jesus. They would like to set an appointment with Jesus, and so they want to go through his disciples so they have an opportunity to speak to to him. But Jesus answers that request for an audience in a bit of a strange way. Look at the next verse there, verse 23. Jesus answered them, he's speaking to his disciples there, Philip and Andrew, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now that seems like a little bit of a strange answer to the question of, can we have an appointment? And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does Jesus mean when when he says that? Well, when Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's in essence saying, not yet to their request for an appointment. It was almost time for Jesus' mission to expand to a global focus. It was almost time for that to happen. And we see after Jesus' death and resurrection, we see the book of Acts, his disciples then carrying out the commission of Jesus and going into all the world and preaching the gospel and, and making disciples of of peoples from every nation, which has always been the plan from the very beginning. But, but Jesus is saying, not yet, because there is something that had to happen first. And that thing that has to happen first is what Jesus refers to as the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, all throughout John's gospel, and when I, when I use the word John's gospel, this is a, a book of the Bible, the book of John, it is a, it's a biography with a purpose. It's a biography 
of Jesus that is intended to lead its readers to belief in Jesus. So all throughout John's gospel, there has been this talk of Jesus' hour that has not yet come. And when Jesus is talking about this hour, he's talking about his time that is coming. And, And Jesus is saying either throughout this gospel that the hour is coming or that it hasn't come yet. So this represents a shift in the way Jesus talks about this coming time because now Jesus is saying is that the hour has come. His time has come. And the time or the hour of his glorification sounds like the time when everyone finally realizes that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one sent by God, that he is fully God and fully man. And so every knee bows and every, confesses, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's what, that's what we would think when we say, okay, the hour of his glorification is here. But that's not what the hour of Jesus' glorification is, at least not yet. As the story unfolds throughout the rest of John's gospel, we learn that what Jesus speaks of is as the hour of his glorification is actually the cross. In fact, in the following verses in in John 12, the chapter that we're in, we see Jesus wrestling with this coming hour. Uh, and and the, the anxiety that, that it produces. He says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? And later on in, those, in, the, in the next verses, Jesus talks about being lifted up. And if he's lifted up, he's going to draw all people to himself. Okay, so we're talking about the cross when we talk about the hour of his glorification. But Jesus here is doing more than preparing his disciples for his death. He's also preparing them for resurrection. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Jesus is using an agricultural metaphor that would have been immediately familiar to everyone. And I brought here in this mason jar with me this morning, I brought wheat seeds. So when Jesus talks about a a, a grain of wheat, he's talking about a wheat seed, or as I looked it up online, they call them berries for some reason, wheat berries. And I don't know why they do that, but there's, I'm sure there's good reason. And so I ordered some wheat seeds or wheat berries, and I filled this mason jar up with them, and I threw away the packaging. I don't know if you can eat these or not. I don't know if these are things that you, people are saying no. Okay. So note to self, uh, don't put this on your yogurt in the morning. Uh, this is this is used for other things, okay? But these we've got the the wheat seeds. You can see what they look like on the screen behind me, but they're they're tiny. See how tiny those those wheat seeds are. So Jesus, in showing t- speaking about these wheat seeds, 
Jesus holds up this tiny little seed in their minds, and he's saying that seed has the potential to become something more, right? That tiny seed has within it a world of potential. That tiny seed has the the blueprint, the DNA, the instructions to unfold something much bigger than itself. That tiny little seed that I, that I hold up that is impossible for you to see in my hand, which is why we have to have uh, a picture of it behind me so you can get a, an idea of what it's like. But that tiny little seed is, can grow up into a stalk of wheat, and that stalk of wheat can have that, that head of wheat be harvested, and that wheat can be used to, to make food. It can be used to bake bread. There is a world of potential in that tiny little seed. But Jesus is explaining to his disciples, unless that grain of wheat, unless that seed of wheat, unless that wheat berry is planted into the earth, it remains alone. What Jesus is saying is, when, if I'm holding that little seed of, of wheat in my hand, it is all it's ever going to be. When I hold that in my hand, there's potential there, but it is, it is what it is. It's everything that it is, it's, it's everything that it can be at that moment. The only way that seed is going to be able to bear fruit to realize all of that potential, Jesus says, is if that seed experiences what? A death. Now, for those of you who are agriculturally savvy, do the thing, well, actually, seeds aren't really dying. Okay, that's, we don't want to press what Jesus is saying too far. He's, he's using an illustration to make a point. There's a sense in which that mode of existence for that seed, that seed has to die to bear the fruit. So what Jesus is doing here is he is opening their eyes not only to his impending death, but to the fruit, the harvest that is going to come from that death, which is brought about because of the resurrection. Now, If you'll forgive the pun, Jesus is doing all of that in seed form because disciples are still not understanding the idea that that Jesus is going to go to the cross. It still takes them by surprise when that happens, and the resurrection takes them by surprise as well. But, But still, Jesus is preparing them in seed form for this idea of death and resurrection. They don't they don't want to lose Jesus. But Jesus is saying, unless, unless he dies and experiences a death, this, this harvest is not going to come about. That's what Jesus is, is saying here in this passage. Now, here's where things continue to get interesting. Because that, what Jesus has just taught could stop right there. People have asked for an audience with Jesus. Jesus is basically saying, not yet. And he uses it as a teaching opportunity for his disciples once again. It's my hour that I've been talking about that's not here yet. Well, it's it's here now. 
and he uses a metaphor to describe the benefits that, that are going to come through this death because it's going to be hard to see Jesus' death as a benefit. It's, it's going to look like losing, right? It's going to lose like failure. You're walking in the triumphal en- entry. It's Palm Sunday, Hosanna, and all that stuff. And then, my how things change in a week. So he's preparing them for that. But then, he turns And he applies this principle of death and resurrection to them. And by extension, you, me. Look at verse 25. He says, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will Keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now remember, these words are penned after all of this has happened. So what Jesus speaks to them in this moment is still something that they're struggling to wrap their minds around. But when John writes this, he's writing it reading new meaning and new understanding into what Jesus is is saying because he has now seen the cross. He has now witnessed the resurrection. The lights have come on about what Jesus was actually talking about here. So we are receiving these words in the full light of the resurrection that they had not yet experienced when Jesus first spoke them. But what Jesus was saying here was that the reality of resurrection should change the way we think about and live our own lives. Let me say that again. So Jesus has just been talking about his own death and hinting at his resurrection, this, the seeds that's going to fall into the ground, die, bear fruit. Then he turns it to us. He turns this principle to us and says, that truth ought to change the way you live. So, he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Okay, so that's why I said at the beginning of the message that Christians are people who practice resurrection. The way we think about our lives and the way that we live our lives ought to be changed by the reality of the resurrection. Eugene Peterson, a a pastor and author who passed away just a few years ago, put it this way. He says, Frequent meditation on Jesus' resurrection, the huge mystery of it, the unprecedented energies flowing from it, prevents us from reducing the language of our conversation to what we can define or control. We live our lives in practice of what we do not originate and cannot anticipate. When we practice resurrection, we continuously enter into what is more than we are. When we practice resurrection, we keep company with Jesus, alive and present, who knows where we are going better than we do, which is always from glory unto glory. That's, that's what we're talking about when, it, when we're talking about practicing resurrection. 
According to Jesus, then, practicing resurrection involves embracing two realities that I want to highlight to you this morning. Number one, if we're going to be practitioners of of resurrection rather than just resurrection theorists, people who have read it, people who happen to believe it, know it's true, but it's, it's something that's intellectually true, divorced from our actual experience. If we're going to become practitioners of resurrection, then we're going to have to embrace two realities. Number one, we are going to have to embrace a new way of living. If the resurrection is true, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then you and I are called as followers of Jesus to embrace a new way of living. And that call to a new way of living calls us to accept a paradox. What's a paradox? A paradox is is an apparent contradiction that actually turns out to be true. It only appears to be a contradiction. So here's the paradox that you and I are going to have to accept based on what Jesus says in these passages. If you choose your life, you're going to lose your life. If you choose your life, you're going to lose your life. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that? Because Jesus uses the language of love and hate here. He says, whoever whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life will gain it. And so, the way I think we often read that passage of Scripture is we think, okay, uh, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I can't appreciate a sunset anymore. I can't appreciate the good, the good gifts that God has given in life, the creation that I have, the, the gifts of family and food and friendship. God is calling on me, upon me to follow. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I've got to hate life. And that's not what Jesus is saying. We talked about this just last week. Those of you who were with us last week might remember this. But when, when the Bible uses the language of love and hate in contexts like these, both in the Old Testament and in the way Jesus use them, uses it in the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus is using this as a Hebrew figure of speech to talk about choice. When he ta- uses the language of love and hate, he's talking about whoever chooses this life is going to lose it, and whoever hates this life or rejects this life is actually going to gain it. That's what, that's the, the language, that's what that language of love and hate means. And I think sometimes that we, we read this verse that talks about loving our lives and losing them versus rejecting our lives or hating our lives and gaining them. We read that verse disconnected from what's just been said about the seed that falls into the ground and then bears fruit. And so we need to properly understand what Jesus means about about if you choose your life, you're going to lose your life, we've got to understand it connected to what he just said about the seeds that fall into the ground and experience a death and then bear fruit. In this context, choosing this life is holding on to the seed and saying, I'm not going to let this thing fall into the ground. 
That's, that's the, the, contextually what Jesus is talking about. So, once again, let me turn around to my jar of wheat seeds that I've got here. I think the way sometimes we approach our lives is you can think about the important things in your life, the things that make your life your life, you could think of them as, as seeds. And so, when I think about my life, I've got my hopes and dreams. And so I've got those things here. I've got to be careful I don't pour too much out. Because if I do, I'm going to drop it. And all the musicians are going to come up here and slip and fall. And that's not going to be good. Okay, so I've got my hopes and dreams. I've got the person that I want to be. I've got the skills I want to build. I've got the legacy that I want to leave behind. I've got my investments for the life that I want to have in the future. I've got, I've got my health. I want to make sure I want to make sure I am as healthy as I can be. Okay, I've got the image that I want to present to the world. I've got, there's, there's a way I want to present myself because there's a way I want people to think about me. There's, the, there's my career and the things that I can accomplish. There are the people that I love and care about that are, are close to me. And so, my life is represented by all of these seeds. I'm going to lose these seeds. Should have thought through this a little bit more. Okay, so I've got, all these, I've got all these seeds. And some of our approach to life is to recognize, is to think, okay, I've got all these precious seeds, and I need to do everything I can to make sure I don't lose any of them. We all know, we all know that we're on a march towards death. Sorry to be depressing on Easter Sunday morning, but that's true. (laughs) We're all on a long march towards death, and we all know, even if we choose not to think about it very often, we know that as we move through life, we're going to lose some of these things. Eventually, your looks are going to go. You're going to wake up one day, and you're going to look in the mirror, and you're going to see, oh, what happened? You're going to experience losses. People that, are, that, that you care about, that you love deeply, you're going to lose those people. Some of us are going to experience the loss of our vitality and our health. Some of us are going to lose identity-giving things in our lives that are important to us. We, we think of ourselves as, I'm the, I'm the man or the woman that does this, and, and we we. We find identity in our occupation, or we find identity in the things that we can possess. There are all sorts of things that we are in the process of losing over life, and we know that we're going to lose those things, so we live our lives carefully like this. Boy, I'm losing a lot of this stuff. These seeds are smaller than I thought. So we go through life like this making sure that we don't lose any of these precious seeds. And any time we do lose one of those precious seeds, we double down our efforts to make sure that we don't lose any more because we want to we do everything I, we can to make sure we don't experience the pain of loss or to minimize the amount of losses that we take. And so our lives take on a self-centered, defensive posture that looks like this making sure I don't lose any of it. 
when Jesus tells us that whoever chooses this life actually is losing it, he is not simply taking from us and saying, hey, if you're going to follow me, you got to throw all this stuff down. What Jesus is actually doing is trying to free us from the tyranny of loss by waking us up to the reality of resurrection. What Jesus is actually doing is is allowing us to live our lives like this. To open up our lives with all the things that are precious to us and say, Jesus, every single one of these things belongs to you. And you may take my health, and you may take my wealth, and you may take people close to me, and I may lose my identity, and, and I am going to lose this and that, but I believe because of the resurrection that every seed that falls bears fruit. Now that's a new way of living, isn't it? Where I can open up my hands and I don't have to worry about all the things that I'm going to lose because Jesus tells me that through His work, every death brings about a resurrection. That is an entirely new way of living. Can the seeds go back in the jar? Kind of. And some of them can go down here. Don't tell anyone. What Jesus is doing when he calls you, he says, if you choose your life, you lose it. Choosing life is living like this. You're going to lose it all anyway. You're going to lose every bit of it. Jesus is actually freeing you in his teaching to become a practitioner of resurrection, to live life in a new way. An author and pastor named Pete Scazzaro says this, the central truth that Jesus is risen from the dead is what enables us to affirm that endings are always a gateway to new beginnings. Even when we can't discern that anything redemptive can emerge from that loss. That's true, right? Almost every single one of us in here has experienced difficult losses. One of the things that we want to make sure that we do on Easter Sunday is is grapple appropriately with the fact that we're still living (laughs) before the, the, the full realization of ultimate resurrection, which means we have taken a lot of losses and experienced a lot of deaths. And there are some losses that you've taken or that you anticipate taking that you cannot imagine a single redemptive thing coming from. And that's what Scazzaro is saying. He says, uh, uh, he goes on to say this, the key is to be willing to wait. We listen and learn, looking for and expecting to see signs of new life. And then it happens. In the midst of our dark tunnel, a sliver of light crosses our path. It comes from the other side of an open door, one we never knew existed. That's living in a new way. 
that seeing that that seeing every loss as a seed is eventually, when we least expect it, going to push a shoot to the ground that speaks of hope. And that's what Jesus said. If a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. So, we're talking about embracing two new realities. The first one is embracing a new way of living. But the second thing is that we must embrace a new world of possibilities. And once again, this requires us to believe a paradox. Jesus has just said, if you choose your life, you're going to lose your life. Now he says, if you give up your life, you get to gain your life, actually. If you give up your life, you gain it. That, that seems like a paradox, because we get hung up on the give up part. But Jesus says, if you give up your life, you actually gain your life. And if we are living in the reality of Jesus' resurrection, if we are practitioners of resurrection, then every death and every loss is opening the door to life. But let me make a clarification for you on this, because we need to make sure that we don't misuse this principle. We could easily misuse this principle and, and, and use the, the hope of resurrection, the hope of new life, to think that that's going to help us bypass grief. So what Jesus is saying here is not a workaround of grief. Jesus is not saying if you embrace the reality of resurrection, you will be spared pain. What is the thing that we most want to avoid in life? Pain. I don't want to hurt. I don't want things in my life to happen that hurt. And when Jesus gives us this, these instructions here, he's not saying, hey, if you, if you believe this, it's going to take away the hurt. And Jesus a- actually modeled this for us. Remember the death of Lazarus? Jesus goes to Lazarus' town and he's, he's standing before the tomb. He's seeing the people that are weeping around Excuse me. <coughs> he's seeing the people that are weeping around him. He's experiencing his own grief at death. And when Jesus stands there and takes the whole thing in and feels the whole thing in all of his full humanity, what does he do? He weeps. He doesn't say, wait till you guys see what I'm about. Now, that's important because Jesus is not minimizing death. He's not minimizing loss. He's not papering over the grief. He knows he is going to bring Lazarus back to life, and yet he still weeps. So a person who is fully practicing that resurrection life is not a person who does not deal with the grief of loss. And the depth of our loss determines the depth of our grief. The greater the loss, the greater care we must take in acknowledging that loss before God and with others in the Christian community. 
there are people here this morning who know well that not every resurrection is immediate. And not every loss is replaceable in this life. Which is why in other parallel passages where Jesus uses this kind of teaching, he uses the phrase, this life and the next. Part of our problem is we're so myopic, we're looking at our lives through a pinhole. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is zoom out and take into account the totality of what I have for my children. So Jesus is not giving us this this teaching to, to bypass grief. But he is giving us the promise that every grain of wheat that dies bears fruit. And so even in grief, faith frees us to lose that which is precious to us. Because there's a whole world of possibilities open if resurrection is true. Back to Wendell Berry, who I mentioned at the beginning. He's a poet, essayist, novelist. He uses this phrase, practice, resurrection, in one of his poems. And in that poem, he imagines in that poem learning to see the world and learning to see the death in the world through the lens of possibility. Learning to see even the death and the loss in the world through the lens of possibility. In other words, not just what we're losing. Sometimes when we experience death and loss, the only things that we can think about are what what we've lost. Barry, in this poem, invites us to see death through an additional lens, the lens of possibility. I'm going to read a few lines of a poem in which he imagines that. He says this in that poem, Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that prophet. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Now let me just rest on that imagery for a minute. In autumn, the leaves are pretty, not here, because we've permanently boycotted autumn in Florida. But there are places where the leaves turn that are up. And when leaves turn, they get beautiful. In fact, people go on tours to see the leaves that are changing. We use the term changing. They ain't changing They're dying. We're going on a tour to watch the leaves die. Look at all the beautiful leaves dying, falling off the trees. We wanted to talk about it for what it is. Those leaves are dying. They're falling to the earth. And in, in, in forests and woods and places where, where no human footprint is touching, those leaves are, over time, breaking down 
and they're becoming part of the soil, and they're contributing to this layer of topsoil called humus, which is going to be used to bring forth life. And so Wendell Berry says, see those dying leaves as a harvest. It's going to produce life. But it's an agricultural metaphor over time. Okay? He uses more strange imagery. He says, listen to carrion. What is carrion? Dead animals in the road, usually, that the vultures are eating. We've all seen that. Usually armadillos. Because armadillos, for the life of them, cannot learn to cross roads. He says, listen to carry on. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. And then the sentence, be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Here's the thing that I think Barry is capturing very well in that poem. Practitioners of resurrection are not people who avoid grief or deny the reality of the many deaths that we experience in life. Christians are not supposed to be a people who are joyfully because we are blissfully unaware of the facts. Christians are a people who because they believe in the reality of the resurrection and they understand that every seed that falls to the ground bears fruit, they are a kind of people who are able to do something that is profoundly countercultural. We are able to be joyful in spite of the fact that we are in full possession of the facts. We know that this world is broken and we feel the grief and we feel the pain and yet through all of that because of the reality of the resurrection we still experience joy not a head in your sand in, in the sand kind of joy but a joy that's fully aware of how bad it can be Christians are people who practice resurrection Christians are people who have an ear that has been trained to hear, in the words of Barry, the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, you and I can hear music that the rest of this world can't hear. We've got to train our ears to listen for. We can't listen for that if our whole lives are lived like this.
Church, my prayer for us this Easter Sunday is that we would not be people who are theorists when it comes to the resurrection. That we would not be people who are able to read about the resurrection, believe the resurrection, talk about the resurrection, sing about the resurrection. We want to do all of those things, but it's possible to do all of those things and still be a theorist. Where the rubber really meets the road is when you follow Jesus and some of those seeds of your life fall to the ground. And you look at it not just as loss, but in the world of resurrection possibilities. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're practitioners of resurrection life. If you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're not clear on what it means to be a Christian, perhaps you can feel death for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, we all live with a sense of our own mortality. And so we're constantly trying to drown that out. And we're constantly trying to give us things that make us feel younger, or look younger. We're trying to stave off the inevitable. But we're tethered to that moment that's coming. And I want, you to, I want you to access that feeling for a moment and not run from it. Because the Bible tells us that something Jesus came to do. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2 and, 15, and verse 15 that Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Whether you'd like to think about it this way or not, you are a slave to death. The Bible tells us that because we have sinned, because we have been born in sin, and because we are sinners in word and thought and action, we are headed towards death, and every day is another experience of death. And it makes slaves of us. Though the Bible says we may be spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, and though we may be moving towards an impending physical death, Jesus, this morning, gives you an offer. Jesus will liberate you from slavery to death. If you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, if you will believe that His death on the cross and His resurrection to life frees you, you can be saved. What Jesus is calling you to do this morning is to actually give up your life. Not so that it can be terrible, but because he wants you to finally be free. So here's what I want to ask of you. 
If you're here th- with us this morning and you want to explore that, you don't understand that, and you would like to talk with someone more about that, we're going to have people during the song on the corners here that will be glad to talk with you more about what it means to be a Christian. They'd be glad to walk with you through the gospel and how we respond. They'd be glad to talk to you about what Jesus has done. Maybe you have come here this morning, you're a believer in Christ, but you've been, you've been living like this. And you want to do this, but this is scary. Because this involves faith. I don't get to say when I do this, well, which seeds do you get to have, Jesus? And maybe you need to pray where you're seated right now while we sing and ask Jesus to help you live life the way he intended. And maybe you need somebody up here to pray with you about that. All of those things are available to you. Let's pray, and then let's sing this last song, not as theorists, but as practitioners of resurrection life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to the, to the, the, the opportunities and the possibilities of resurrection. Forgive us for holding on to our lives, living our lives with closed hands. Help us to open ourselves up to truly follow you the way you not only deserve to be followed, but the way you demand to be followed. May all that we have be yours. And Lord, as we in this congregation this morning deal with with the hurt and the pain of loss and death, and there are many of us hurting. Give us hope. If there is someone here this morning, Lord, who does not know Jesus as Savior, I pray that you would deliver them from slavery this very morning, that they would walk out of this auditorium liberated in Christ. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.